på hops and box office flops. 12 män har nettot uppdagat en ting. För 100.000 år det har varit begravet under snö och is. Men nu har det funnit ett sted att vara. Ett sted där ingen kan se det. Eller höra det. Eller föla det. Hops and box office flops. A place where we can celebrate the underdog films, the bombs, the disasters, the much maligned movies that have drowned in their infamy. So please sit back, grab a beer, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by Revenge of the Fans. And tonight, man, is the warmest place to hide. If that and our intro didn't give it away, tonight's episode features the John Carpenter classic, The Thing. So before we get started, uh, along with me, I am the Thunderous Wizard, our Captain Cash. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. You know me from the cosplay, uh, but also I talk on this thing. And Chumpzilla, introduce yourself. Hey, howdy folks, Chumpzilla checking in here. You can find me on Friendster and the Yahoo comment section. Yeah, he's very uh, prolific on Yahoo comments. Uh, Big on those Yahoo answers. And Yahoo answers, yes. Yep. Ask Jeeves. He was Jeeves for a spell. A couple of points of order, right? You can find the show on Twitter and Facebook, at Hops and B.O. Flops. You can find myself at WriterTLK. You can find Captain Cash at... C-A-P-T-C-A-S-H on most of your social medias. We thank you all for voting on the polls, and this was really the best possible choice because this is just a fantastic movie. Uh, I do enjoy making fun of bad movies a lot more, so Leprechaun would have been extremely fun, but another time, there's plenty of Leprechauns to do. We could go to the hood and then back to the hood one day. And into space. Yep. I, I really liked it, this choice. I don't know that it's perfect hops and B.O. flops, if for no other reason than everybody knows how great this movie is. That's the only part that holds it back. I feel like we really excel at, here was a shitty movie that got panned real hard, but it's actually a movie you ought to see, which this movie was. But I feel like history has since vindicated it yeah. in a huge way. It's so if you haven't seen this movie... Go watch this right now. You can stream it on Stars, or you can buy it. And if you don't own Stars, save yourself the twenty bucks a month and just buy this fucking thing. It's great. Yeah, this might be one of the best B movies of all time. I'm not even sure I'd call it a B movie. It's a full, it's a full on horror, and it's it's well produced. There was clearly money behind this thing, especially for '82. Yeah, I mean, it's still. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, I can't say that it's not a B movie, but it's a, it, it might be the best B movie, best B horror movie. That's fair. Because I mean, it it, it, it is extreme on body horror and and the schlocky nature. And the cheapness, the cheapness shows through. There are parts of it that are cheap, but it's excellent nonetheless. In the in the, in the pantheon of Carpenter movies, this is one of the least B movies of his movies. Like Big Trouble, that's a B movie. It is, to- it's totally genre specific. It's way the fuck out there. This is a really tense horror film that you could just show somebody who's not really into 
movies from the 80s or maybe uh, is sort of snobbish and the oh everything has to be really awesome CGI this holds up so well the creature effects are insane I think it's just a dynamite horror movie in a in a decade of really not so dynamite horror movies that are considered classics you know there's a lot of crappy horror movies we just talked about one in fact uh, though we love you chopping mall <laughs> Perhaps the most 80s of the horror movies, in fact. I I think, again, there is a lot of money behind it, and it's got some really big ideas, and it executes some of them very well. And it's if you go back to the original source material, which is the novella, you know, the short story, not... Who goes there? Who goes there, not the 1950s movie. It's a fairly faithful adaptation of that. You know, that, that was very much a... Uh, kind of psychological, you know, thriller horror type movie, and this keeps those elements, but it really takes, as uh, I think you mentioned, Captain Cash, that body horror level up to the '80s B movie level it needed to be to, to get an audience at the time. So before we get into it with TW there, Chumzilla, what are we drinking this evening? <laughs> well, <clears throat> taking a little inspiration here from the the titular the thing, we've got. Altered Beast IPA uh, coming from the Southern Prohibition Brewing coming out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, home of Brett Favre. It is Arise a, from your grave. You got it. And it's even got the, the uh, werewolf on the can. Um, yeah, it is a citrusy IPA that's got a decent hop flavor, not too sweet, maybe a hint of some pears in there. Um, not too bad. And... Uh, on that note, let's crack a beer. That actually is a really uh, appropriate beer, considering the way this movie sort of the uh, the action point that sends everything into uh, motion is. I, I believe the theme the film geeks call that the inciting incident. Yes. Adjust glasses. Let's uh, get right into it. Released June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. Uh, film earned $3.1 million opening weekend and finished at number eight behind supernatural horror movie Poltergeist, which was in its fourth weekend of release, ahead of some film called Mega Force, which I don't think I've seen, and dropped out of the top ten films in just three weeks, ended its run with $19.6 million, cost about $15 million, 42nd highest grossing movie of 1982, which is a real shame. Uh, so at the time, it wasn't just a commercial flop, though. The critics hated this movie. Here's just a sampling. Cinefantastique printed an issue with the thing on its cover with the question, is this the most hated movie of all time? Uh, it was also labeled the quintessential moron movie of the 80s. Instant junk, wretched excess. Starlog's Alan Spencer called it cold and sterile. Horror movie attempting to cash in on the genre audience against the optimism of E.T., the reassuring return of Star Trek II, the technical perfection of Tron. Boy, that guy, did, that does not age well, my friend. Because guess what you can't look at today and say, boy, that holds up, Tron. And the sheer integrity of Blade Runner. Tron does not hold up. Don't look at me like that, Chumpsell. It does not hold up. At the time, I don't know. Um... What, what holds up worse? Tron or Tron Legacy? <laughs> Tron Legacy. A young, a young Jeff Goldblum from 2010 is truly terrifying. Wait, Goldblum? Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bridges. 
Bridges, sorry. The his, dude. His ambiguous rubber face. That's supposed to be young Jeff Bridges. I confused the, my favorite Jeff for my second favorite Jeff. My bad. Yeah. I'm shocked to see how poorly the critics received this movie because I was exposed to it first on cable. I think as most people were because obviously it, it didn't do great in the theaters. I always thought this was a great horror movie and it was, it was cool and it was weird and the effects were great. Um, but I can understand at the time through the lens of looking at other stuff like Poltergeist, for example, coming out at the same time and uh, <clears throat> E.T. being a much friendlier alien movie. I guess maybe this just came at a bad time, but I'm shocked because this movie seems like something that would have been a hit in the 80s. I, I, I'm kind of surprised it was poorly received. And again, catching it on cable, I was firmly in that cult. I guess audience that it found because I always thought it was great as a kid. We're gonna to get to. Or I'm gonna bring us back to that in just a second, but I think you're right. I think this movie, just about more than any other I can think of off the top of my head, exemplifies how critics just sometimes don't always get it right. Because this is a cult classic in the truest sense. This is a movie that's very good. People recognize it as being very good. People don't ironically watch it, like for example, The Room. Like, this is just a genuinely great film that people have real admiration for. They don't gather around and get drunk to make fun of it. You watch this and you appreciate what Car- Carpenter did. He is the director. Which is nuts because apparently this shook Carpenter to his core. Like when he, when he and Kurt Russell got the negative reviews, they were like, holy shit, we thought we were producing something great. What, what happened? Yeah. And I, I don't know what was going on in, what, what was it June of 82? Yep, June of 82. Yeah, I'm going to add one more thing here before you, you jump. Um, one more thing. <laughs> yeah, pun intended. So you just mentioned Captain Cash. This movie was released in June. Do you think the fact that it had a winter setting and it was almost exclusively shot in snowy conditions, I mean, other than the indoor stuff, but... For the most part, it appeared to be a winter movie. Do you think it hurt it to be released in the summer? Do you think that took away from the suspension of disbelief a bit? Had this been a winter movie, would it have fared better? I actually do. I think if you release this around Halloween, like because you're going into the dark, cold time and everything, I, I think that's I, yeah. the way to go. Yeah, I think I don't see this as a summer movie. Honestly, I don't see this as a summer movie. Like, this is not what I would call a summer blockbuster. Now, based on the critic reviews, I think this should have been, yeah, Halloween, November-ish, more towards winter. It's darker, it's bleak, and it's set in the snow. So my first question really was, what went wrong when it was released? And perhaps it's not a summer movie. I think one of the big things is that in the 80s, even more, definitely more so than now, because now you see this trend to, uh, if critics hate something, it almost becomes like a rallying cry to then go defend it. And then people will be like, oh, swear it's good, and the experts are all wrong. But in 82, you read the review in your paper, it trashes the movie. You're probably not going to go see the movie. That's the only review you can see. Yeah. You know, so if that person's talking about how awful this is, this is the worst movie ever made. They're saying some of the ridiculous shit we just mentioned. You're, you're probably not going to go spend your, you know, $4 to see it. It's, it's tough. And horror movies, I don't think, are good summer movies anyway. Because the summer is all about fun popcorn entertainment. And even though, what was Jaws 78, which is really the first big summer blockbuster, 
and that is a horror movie, it's definitely not this bleak. This movie's a very depressing sort of journey to the end. It's You're just waiting. People are being picked off one by one, and they're dying in gruesome, terrible fashion. Yes, this is more of the traditional slasher-type movie in that regard, where guys are getting picked off one by one, and it's kind of methodical. Jaws was definitely not in that mold so much. But also, what was the setting for Jaws? It the was... Yeah, uh, 4th of July. It's a summer movie. See, I think I, I, I think that has a little bit to do with it. This was a, a snow setting. Tough to get that to work in the summer. I don't think people's brains are ready for it. But uh, you look at John Carpenter's resume at this point. We've got Halloween, which was a big success. We've got Escape from New York, which is his first collaboration with Kurt Russell. And then you've got this. And as weird as it is to say now, I think this seemed like a bit of a departure from his previous work. So I don't even think, not only did it come out in the summer, which maybe is the wrong time for the movie, but I don't think this had a lot of hype coming from it in terms of being a John Carpenter project. And and I think also he'd also worked with uh, with our boy from Tron. Uh, I think maybe not this movie, but his next one was Starman. Yeah, it's not, that's 84, so it's not too far after four? this. Yeah, so there's a little, little, there's a little Tron connection there. Uh, he still got to work with uh, Jeff Bridges. But anyway, yeah, I mean, this was I think this was kind of a weird time for John Carpenter. And to your point, Captain Cash, the negative reception of this movie really did get to him because he really was proud of this. He thought this was going to be a successful project. And, and obviously, at the time, it was not well-received. Which, in retrospect, yeah, it should have been well received. Because holy shit, this is a great movie. There is. It's still one of Tom Carpenter's favorites. Yeah, bear with me for a second, because right as I said, sometimes critics they're not on point with certain films. Another '80s movie, The Shining. I think it's the '80s, maybe it's the '70s. Stanley Kubrick nominated for worst director Razzie. DeVito nominated for worst supporting actor for The Penguin. De Palma, nominated for Worst Director for Body Double, Scarface, Dressed to Kill. Every single one of those movies, whether it's The Shining, Batman Returns, Double, Body Double, Scarface, or Dressed to Kill, they're all considered genre-defining movies in some way. The Shining was 1980, just for the record. And Body Double and Dressed to Kill, fantastic, like vintage De Palma films. Scarface is one of the most inf- influential films of the 20th century because of the cultural like, mm. context it took on and what it sort of did and how much shit it inspired. Rappers you know, have often credited Scarface for having some sort of inspiration. So sometimes people are just wrong. And I'm, not a, I'm not a critic hater at all. Like I, I read a lot of different critics. I believe that... You literally are a critic. ...is important. Uh, but you know, people get things wrong. I get things wrong. I've seen movies and I can't stand PBS. them. PBS, wait, what? The first time around. No, I'm right about that. Uh, I'm, I'm taking pot shots. I've had too many drinks already. Uh, and, you know, you watch it again, and all of a sudden you like it a lot better. And it's it's just an interesting thing. And in this movie's case, if there's a lot of negative buzz, a movie, another example that we've done on this pod, uh, Last Action Hero, the buzz was so bad, people couldn't wait to tear that movie apart. So if test screenings are producing bad buzz, you're hearing bad buzz, it's it's a real thing that people say, okay, well, I, I'm next to skewer this thing. I can't wait. And they just they think about what they're going to say. 
And it kind of sucks in a way, but it happens. That's a thing. All right. So we are going to talk about what makes a classic, and we sort of touched on that at the beginning. But I did want to say, stars of the film, obviously, Kurt Russell, America's Treasure. Wilford, these are my testing supplies, Brimley. I think the bigger message here is, Wilford, you wouldn't know me without my mustache, Brimley. Yeah, he looks much different. Way different. Kind of creepy. Keith, you put the beans above the Frank. Uh, David. Richard, licensed to drive Mauser. TK, you may not believe this, but I did a voice in Space Jam Carter. Uh, David from Legal Eagles. <laughs> and there's some more. It's a really good, it's a pretty good cast for a 80s horror movie. And it is also an all-male cast. It is. Huh, I hadn't considered that. So what makes it a classic? You know, I said in the beginning, the atmosphere, the claustrophobia, the need to sort of unravel this mystery, which... If you listen to our intro, which was in Norwegian, apparently it wasn't a very difficult mystery if you speak Norwegian. <laughs> and why is that, Captain Cash? So that's my biggest problem with this movie. The biggest mystery gets revealed in the first fucking two minutes of this film when they show you a spaceship. And and this movie plays so much better if you just start at like the five minute mark so that you don't know what's going on is an alien that's killing everybody. No, just start with the tearing screen that then becomes the thing print when the screen is ripping yes. open like so much of the, you know, people's heads, people's chests. There's a lot of ripping in this movie in a lot of disgusting ways. A um, lot of really visceral. Ripping and the tearing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think all of this, like, that, that tension, that, that feeling of who can you trust, the weird glances, uh, that's all underscored by the music, which was Ennio Morricone, who is one of the great composers of all time, who did the music for this, which is weird because Carpenter almost universally does the music for his films, but this was a huge step up for him. Uh, Halloween and uh, Escape from New York were relatively cheap films, and he was given... 15 million dollars like this had to be a hit he had to focus all his attention on making sure it was a hit so what do you think chumso why is this such a classic well i i think it's a combination of a couple of things i mean i think it is it is some strong source material i think it's an interesting story and i think the whole aspect of not knowing who to trust and the suspense aspects of it make for you know, a good movie, you know, the, the skeleton is good. And then on top of that, I think the effective vision and directing of John Carpenter coupled with the just insane character effects for the most part, uh, there are some that aren't so great because there were some budget issues. This movie's got some of the most memorable creature effects, kills, just inventive stuff that we saw in the 80s. I mean, it rivals, I would say, uh, the chestburster scene in Alien. To your point, there are a handful of horror scenes that get seared into the back of your retinas after having seen them. And for me, the scene at which they defibrillate the guy's chest and his chest opens up and snaps off the dude's arms, that's something that I struggled as a nine-year-old to forget having seen this. And it's done with practical effects, and it looks very real. Yeah. And oh, yes. Like, I cannot stress how incredible the effects are in this. Like, 
watch it now, even 30 years later, almost 40 years later. Wow. And the practical effects with the heads that move independent of the bodies and the stretching and pulling and tearing of flesh, it's disgusting and incredible and just visceral and awful. Yeah, let's just, let's just break down. There, there are a couple of big splash moments that, that are very memorable, the defibrillator. Um, I, the, the first dog, I think that's the one that gets overlooked the most because it happened so early in the film, and then some of the other stuff is mm-hmm. much more memorable and closer in proximity. But that first reveal when that dog's face splits open and... And basically turns into a demogorgon. Yes, and then the whole thanks Stranger Things, and that that whole and then they and then oh that that that's great and then the dog turns into the bigger monster and it's just it's just disgusting and slimy and great, but then, oh, then, you, yeah. get the, then you get the whole defibrillator scene, and that, which you know leads also to the uh, spider crab head monster. Um, yeah, and, head and spider then, is universally terrifying. Yeah, and, and that's also one of the biggest laughs in the movie. Not a lot of laughs in this movie. That's probably one of the biggest laughs in the movie. Is that you got to be fucking kidding me? As the head's trying to crawl away, um, yeah. and, then, and then you you've got the uh, the guys tied to the chair scene. Oh and yeah, it's up to the ceiling, and there, there, there's just some crazy stuff there. Um, and then you've got the uh, uh, what's his name uh, Bennings Bennings when he runs out, he gets caught mid assimilation has to run out on his own. That's one of the creepier scenes in the movie. Not the most over-the-top effect, but they all circle around him, and he's on his knees, and he's got the deformed hands. And fun fact, they actually had a much more elaborate death planned for him, but they couldn't do it because of budgetary reasons, so they had to keep it smaller. I actually think it works better because it's way creepier when he lets out that invasion of the body snatcher's howl. Yeah. Discovered. I mean, that, you know, that freaked me out more than the defibrillator because the defibrillator thing to me was more kind of over the top horror. But earlier before you've really seen all that gross stuff, that scene with the guy in the snow Bennings and that scream and the howl, and then they torch him. That one stuck with me. That one was honestly disturbing as a kid. Yeah. Well, before we get too far, let's make sure that we do our, uh, our one-offs and give a little bit of a, what's going on with the plot before we wax too much now that we're like 30 minutes into how awesome this movie is yeah we haven't really discussed the plot so much we've talked a lot about how awesome it is uh for the record chumpzilla the scene that sold carpenter on directing this film was the scene where they're all tied to the chair and he's testing the blood that is a really tense scene yeah, that that tension that not knowing when that blood's gonna pop who's infected that sold him on being the director um and you're right, the dog scene for me is the best. I think it's the most disgusting. When the tentacles lash out and grab the dog, or even when it just starts to like flip out and all the shit is flying out of its body and it's beginning to morph, that's insane. Oh, it's, it's so gross because it's, so, it's, it's all practical. It's all like slime and... Oh, you know, I know. Flipping around. Oh, yeah. So much slime. Ugh. The plot, according to IMDb... Uh, and as Captain Cash mentioned, the only place you can watch this for free is Stars. That's assuming you're paying for Stars. Yeah, I did own this at one time, but I owned it on HD DVD because I'm one of the morons who invested in that fledgling high definition <laughs> disc brand. Might as well bought it on Betamax. Uh, yeah. So I just decided to buy it on digital last night, and it was like 14 bucks. And I mean, 
I'm gonna. That, that's money well spent. That's worth every penny. Yeah, yeah that, that's a steal. IMDb. A research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of the victims, of its victims. Uh, so, who would like to go first? One sentence description. I'm. I'm gonna take my my one sentence description in the form of a meme. Uh, that meme being, child, gets a flame verfer. <laughs> All right, I'm the movie. <laughs> Sorry, Captain Cash. I'll cheat here a bit. Mine might be slightly more than a sentence, but <clears throat> John Carver's The Thing is a cosmic horde-inspired reimagining of Glen Gary Glen Ross, where first place is a ticket out of the Antarctic, second place is assimilation by a spider crab head monster, and third place <laughs> is spending the rest of the winter on this fucking couch. Well done. That is one sentence, by the way. It's a long sentence. But it's Put sentence. the head monster down. Head monsters are for closers. <laughs> ABC, always be closing. ABM, always be monsters. So I will not yeah. get uh, that in depth. Mine is just men exchange nervous glances in the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly... If you just changed Arctic to Montana, you've also got the description of Brokeback Mountain. So that's that's a way to go. <laughs> gets gets real cold. Gets real cold. Yeah, but no, nobody's head falls off in Brokeback Mountain. I mean, there's plenty of head, just not head <laughs> monsters, oh, I guess. Oh, oh no, no, oh, too boy. much. I'm sorry. Okay, so this we, is an explicit podcast. I've been drinking. Light plot reflection. Just listen to the Norwegian opening. That's the plot. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like to point out that's the joke of having the Norwegian opening for the pod tonight because, yeah, if you were watching this in the Nordic countries, the entire movie is spoiled very early on because the conversation between the two Norwegian researchers uh, basically explains everything. If you didn't already kind of assume that's what the spaceship deal was before the opening credits, but yeah, regardless... Uh, the Norwegian and Swedish audiences were not real happy with this movie because they failed to redub that in their uh, local releases. So essentially what you have is a Norwegian group of researchers opens the film chasing a dog. You don't know why they're chasing said dog, but they want to kill it. Uh, they fail to do so. And the movie transforms from that point into not so much a who done it, but a who is it? What's happening? Who is it? And fake Wilford Brimley, who's real Wilford Brimley, not mustache Wilford Brimley, is sort of the one unraveling that mystery. But he loses his goddamn mind. And without him, they're left to their own nervous devices. So, Captain Cash, you can elaborate further, but that is essentially the film. I think the only thing you can add to that is the dog is running toward the American Antarctic Station as they go into their deep winter where they're not going to have contact with folks for months at a time because it's full-on night there forever. And it essentially turns into you've got this monster that can assume the form of anything, and it starts as this dog, but very quickly it turns into the other people, and then who is the monster? And we mentioned the, the couch scene where they try to deduce who the monster is, and really that's that's the core of this film that everyone and anyone could be the thing that's just waiting to get you alone so it can murder and assimilate you in a horrible way. 
And that's why I think this movie remains so effective. And I mean, the just to make a very long story short, basically everyone is murdered and assimilated to the point where the entire Antarctic station is completely destroyed, save the two characters that are kind of more present for the rest of the film, which are Kurt Russell's McCready, who has an amazing beard and hat, and Keith David Gargoyles really needs a a, a, a revival. Uh, Keith David's childs, uh, and they meet together at the very end, and they share a drink, thinking perhaps they've killed the thing, or perhaps the other one might be the thing, and it fades to black, and there's no answer. Yeah. And the we- way this ends, I think, is might have been what drives so much of this. It ends so perfectly because yeah. certainly they're both dead, but is one of them the thing? And if one of them's the thing, does the thing just go into hibernation? Like it's been hibernating so, for this whole time in the Antarctic. Okay. So I, I, we'll get to this in a bit, but yeah, you're correct. Uh, Captain cash. Yeah. It's implied early in the film. There's two things we have to keep in mind here. One, it, it that uh, couch uh, tying scene with the blood testing what you really should call it the blood testing scene. It, it's established mm. that there's more than one thing present. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you know you've got at least, you know there's multiple people infected now. So it's not like it's a singular thing. It's not like there's just one of us. No, it could be all of us or none of us. It, it, it's really not, not, not known. But they also established that the things act independently of each other. And hence the whole blood thing is that they're not one. They are actually selfish entities into themselves. So they might actually even be competing against each other for survival, which is mm. implied, not clearly stated, but implied. And on top of that, yes, it is theorized by McCready, by Kurt Russell, that the thing might just want to wait it out and just get discovered. It doesn't necessarily need to get out of the Arctic. It just needs to make sure that it's preserved for someone else to come and find it next, which in my interpretation of the ending, those things play heavily into it. But. Which which is part of Dr. Blair, mustacheless Wilford Brimley's theorizing is that if this got out, then it would essentially overrun the world. And I think it's 2,700 hours or 7,200 hours, one of the two. And his whole mission then becomes to ensure that it never gets out. And they never get out. That's uh, a sort of short-sighted considering help is coming at some point. <laughs> well, now, now, wait a minute, though. So here's the thing. John Carpenter has said that he has a definitive moment in the movie when he thinks each individual character is assimilated. So at what point does Wilfred Brimley get assimilated? Because is at what point is that his theory and his conversation or is that him trying to get himself isolated as the thing so he can work on building a spaceship because at some point at some point that becomes his motivation he no longer is the doctor he becomes the thing and builds a spaceship to me brimley is assimilated gets assimilated now if you pay very close attention part of the dog thing escapes through the ceiling you see it escape they think they've burned it alive, but it escapes. They then, Wolfram Brimley then goes insane, starts smashing the radio equipment, breaks the helicopter, and they lock him up. I think he is assimilated off screen because when they go back to him, 
all he can say is, I'd like to be, I'd like to come out now, please. I'm fine. I'd like to come out now, please. Like he's very strange in that, that brief interaction they have with him. I think he's assimilated off screen. And when they see him that second time, he's been turned. He's been turned. Yeah. That I think also gets to the heart of what makes this movie so good is there's, there's so much conversation to be had about who's a thing and when are they a thing and, and what are the tells of the thing? Because there's so many different people who could be the thing at any one time. Norris is the easiest one to tell because Norris's (laughs) body betrays him and he can't, he's not a good enough host. And you see that as he struggles to, he starts coughing and he's struggling to breathe. And then they think he has had a heart attack. That's his giveaway. He wasn't fit to sort of maintain this thing long term. Yeah. See, I, I wonder I, about that. I, I like the red herring too. Let's not forget there's one big red herring in the movie. The dog and guy. That's the dog handler. Yeah. Richard Mauser. Which was fantastic because you were sure that dude was a thing. He was a total creep. He acted weird. And he wasn't. And to me, that was one of the bigger reveals in the movie, the fact that his blood tested good after he's dead. He gets shot, and you assume, like, oh, he must have been a thing. But no, he wasn't. One of the big uh, flaws is when they find the long underwear in the kitchen, and he's like, oh, I don't know whose these are because the name's ripped off. It's like, none of you motherfuckers are the same size. Figure it out. Do some deduction. I know you haven't slept in a while, Kurt Russell, but come on. It's like Richard Mauser's huge. Norris's character's sort of short and fat. Dr. Blair's short and fat. Uh, the other doctor's skinnier. Like, there's like six sizes of shirts. You can figure this out. They're stretchy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like a medium and a large. But that's just being very nitpicky. Uh, no, but but I mean, I, I I realize that's kind of a weaker point in the movie because that's one of their one of the things like, hey, we 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 think when you get turned, you, your clothes get shredded. Yeah, which I think is strange because that's because you know, when, you see, ben, the when you, see, you see when you see bendings get assimilated, there was no shredded clothes left. Yeah, right. Or that's was, were that's there? Uh, one of the more confusing things because they're always fully clothed after they've been turned. You know, Dr. Yeah. Blair is fully clothed. Uh, and there's not clothes left behind. Yeah, you either. can't really tell. It's not like an alien where it's shedding its skin and you find it and you're like, oh, guess it's For me, bigger. this is what kind of, it gets to the heart of what assimilation is because there's a discussion to be had around do the people who are things know they are things? To the point where, like, if you look at some of the the production notes, the actor who plays Childs, plays it like he doesn't know whether he's a thing or not. That's where it gets a, a little bit fuzzy. Plus, you know, Wilford Brimley grabs the one dude and stretches it, like at the end, stretches his face like with his fingers and then is seen dragging him away by the face, which is now distended and stretched out. So is assimilation just, you know, at a microscopic level it takes over you or... No, they know. <laughs> I think what you're reading, what you're reading into this, is the uh, tension that they're trying to create. No, if you can ask the question, "Am I a thing or not?" You're not a thing. But 
But the point is, is they, they wanted they wanted to create the environment where the guys were questioning it. That that's the that's the angle they're trying to to go for is that they don't they don't know that. So they have to ask themselves like, holy crap, am I sure in myself? They, they they wanted that level of paranoia. So it's more yeah. about the paranoia, not so much the mechanic of the thing. If you're a thing, you know you're a thing. They wanted to create the doubt in the humans that they have to ask themselves. Uh, am I sure of myself? None of these guys have slept. They're all like, they're so that they, they're driven by that fear at this point. They're they're running on fumes. But Kurt Russell does say right before he sticks the hot uh, uh, wire, fire wire into his blood, he goes, "I'm going to show you what I already know. It's nothing." Yeah. Because he knows he's not a thing. But ev- the the real thing is like you're you're. You're within feet of these people, and you don't trust a single one of them. Not even the guy holding the the thing of dynamite and the flamethrower. You don't even trust him, right? This guy that's clearly doing anything to survive, which is also quite curious, right? Because the thing does anything it can to survive. We'd probably do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that brings us to the ending of the film. Like you said, are they? You know, maybe they're both a, a version of the thing. Maybe they're not. How did you interpret the ending? We'll start with Chumzilla. Okay. So I'm going to go for probably the least popular uh, ending here. I, I actually think McCready's the thing. I say that for basically one reason, and that is his line that's basically the last line of the movie is, let's just wait and see what happens. Because the thing at that point knows it's already won. Because the human is going to die, and it's going to just go into stasis if if they're not rescued in a timely fashion. Um, it, it doesn't have to worry about childs at that point. It, it's already won. And now, at what point is McCready assimilated? I don't know. I would argue that you you could back to what you said, Mister Wizard. Uh, it could have been when he comes back from the shack after they tried to strand him. Uh, because they did find his shredded long johns with his name tag on them, or shredded clothes with his name tag on them at some point. Never explained either. Yeah. No, he might have been trying to preserve himself the whole time. He could he he could have faked that blood test. He could have he could have worked his way around that. Um, who knows? But yeah, I think there's a there's a chance that it could have been him, and that's why he's comfortable at the end. I have the opposite version of that. I believe Childs is the thing. McCready is the the last human for a handful of reasons. First, we stay with McCready the entire end of that third act through uh, Wilford Brimley becoming the giant crazy creepy thing where where the you can tell the special effects budget kind of didn't quite stick it. Um, but we we see him the entire time. We stay with McCready through the the wire test where you know he's not the thing. Childs disappears for that second or that final half where there's stuff blown up everywhere and Childs just rolls up with the flamethrower. Further, there's a couple different things that you, you don't really notice and I honestly had to go into the trivia of a handful of things to that really caught my eye. And those were that Childs' breath doesn't appear like it's Antarctica. It's cold. When Childs breathes, you don't see the same puff of breath that McCready has. Additionally, 
you don't really get a great sense of it, but as he's mixing the Molotov cocktails, you kind of see the bottle of JB Scotch. So the running, I guess, theory around the internet is that he actually made that bottle of JB Scotch a Molotov cocktail. He gives it to Childs, who is the thing, who then drinks it. He doesn't realize that it's not supposed to taste like gasoline, drinks it, smiles, and that's how McCready knows, ah, Childs is the thing. But it ends, and that's that. Okay, so I cannot confirm or deny your theory, Captain Cash, but I can deny yours, Chumpzilla. This is the director and editor, Todd Ramsey. So Todd Ramsey and, and John Carpenter shot and cut an alternate ending to this film. It was never used. Uh, Ramsey was concerned that the bleak, ambiguous ending would not test well. So he suggested that Carpenter cover his bases and have a spare ending ready. The ending uh, shows lead character Mac Ready is rescued, and he appears in a room where he's given a blood test to determine whether he has been assimilated. He passes that test. Now, they chose not to do that because, one, that ending sucks. The ambiguous ending really makes the movie. And then, uh, 2002, there was a video game on Xbox, PS2, I think, era, called The Thing. It's a direct sequel to this movie. Mac Ready is rescued at the beginning of that video game. According to John Carpenter, it is canon. So Mac Ready's not The Thing. Okay. My only rebuttal here is to a couple of the points that Captain Cash made. One, the uh, breath thing. We definitely see condensation breath from the bendings thing earlier in the movie during his death scene so that's not necessarily a tell that's fair and if i'm being completely honest if you look at there's one shot where the child's thing looks like it breathes and you maybe see some condensation so i don't know how how much you can really give that to refute that though uh the bendings thing is not fully turned he has not taken full control of Bennings, whereas Childs at that point would be fully turned and thus subject to control of the thing. Interesting. In Interesting. Total. Fair enough. But I, uh, I, I will concede that there's, I suppose the sequels have made some canon evidence there, but I mean, that, that kind of ruins it for me. It's, to me, this is kind of like the B-movie Blade Runner. You know, is Deckard a replicant? Is... Very obviously he's a replicant, but that's a different story. Yeah, well, he is now, but defining that definitively kind of robs the movie of some of the fun. Some of the fun was not really knowing how it ended. Now, to be fair, a deleted ending doesn't really mean a whole lot. It was deleted for... Yeah, true. So that doesn't prove anything, and I don't really consider the video game canon, but John Carpenter does, so... I never played that game, so... I think it's an interesting point, though, because you're right, there is... There is a lot of lost time with Childs in that last act. There's a lot of lost time. He he claims to have been following Doctor Blair. Well, I, I'll add one more thing to my to to support my theory, because they would be competing, the things. I can definitely because you can make the argument. Well, why would McCready kill the Wilford Brimley thing? Well, it's because he doesn't agree with Wilford Brimley thing's plan to get off the planet via spaceship. He thinks the best thing to do is to stay right here. 
because he's got his own plan. So that that's 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 probably one of my only defenses for that. Because like, why would he blow? Why would he go all the effort to blow that up and go along with the humans? Uh, maybe because he doesn't think that's the best plan for survival. He, he thinks surviving out to the end and eliminating the last human and just waiting to be discovered and take it back to civilization is the best option. So that's why he would compete with the other thing. I rest my case. Okay, a couple of questions. These are serious questions. <laughs> These are serious questions about a movie from 40 years ago that, that, we're, that we're several drinks deep in. Yeah, to piggyback on our chopping mall scenario, which one of us either cracks first in this scenario or dies first? Better yet, which one of us is dumb enough to trust the thing and get taken over? I'll, I'll be up front with you. I, I am the thing right now. Well, there's no arguing that. <laughs> I, I, I think the biggest problem we'd have, though, is that Captain Cash's behavior is so strange, we really have no way to figure out if it was him or not. It, we, he'd be the enigma. We would know to the end. There's no solid tell. Here's how you'd know. I'd be like, I'd be like, hey, guys, let, let's, watch the, let's watch the football game. That's how you know I'm the thing. Yeah, yes. Well, that's a tell for sure. <laughs> that would be the G- gentleman. How how was the sports ball gone? Yeah, torch him, torch him. That's definitely not me. Wait a minute, it's eleven p.m. What are you doing up? He's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, I, I think I'm weird enough. You guys would be like, shit, we can't tell. We'd probably yeah. just have to bake you right away. Like, get the flamethrower. <laughs> Preemptive strike. Uh, you know what? We'll never know with him. Just yeah. take him out. You just shot an innocent man. I had to. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> I'm the dog handler. Damn it. Uh, second very serious question. Uh, I understand that dog is pseudo-powered up, but how on earth did it get like 300 yards ahead of the helicopter? It's an alien. By the power of plot. And Grayskull. Between that and the amount of broken windows when it's going to be minus 100 degrees outside, I'm like, come on, guys. What's going on here? Now, now wait a minute. Uh, talking about the cold weather gear here. Okay, these guys weren't exactly the most bundled up at certain times in the movie. But what the hell was with Kurt Russell in a safari hat in the Antarctic? Uh, I always took that as it's a, it's a nod to the fact that he was a Vietnam-era uh, helicopter pilot. I just thought he was eccentric. <laughs> sure, okay, I'll, I'll buy it, I guess. Some interesting facts about this film, and I'm sure you guys found them as well. Uh, pivotal scene near the end of the, end of the movie where McReady battles the enormous Blair thing. Uh, Botton, who was the special effects guy, called upon stop-motion expert Randall Cook for help. Cook created enti- an entire miniature model of the set and filmed a bunch of wide-angle stop-motion monster effects. Even though this only took up seconds of screen time, took countless hours to create, when they saw it, they thought it looked too laughable, so they cut it out. But that scene is on YouTube. I'll post that to the social. It really I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it wouldn't have added a whole lot to the proceedings. So, so what were your thoughts, though? Was it, was it cheesy enough to keep out? I think so, based upon the other stuff that you had in the movie. It sort of... It, it looked too much different than the other stuff, I think. Yeah, but, that stop motion stuff can look tough. Yeah, true. Because the, the green screen technology back then wasn't great, so yeah. it's really hard to layer it. Well, just think, I mean, like all this other stuff is practical and it's all the actual actors in the scene. So to then stop motion it, you're getting a Jason and the Argonauts sort of vibe. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, fair. I, I, I think that is probably this movie's biggest sin and weakness is that it really does end on a special effects note on a whimper because everything was so solid up to that point. Um, aside from, aside from when windows gets his head bit and there's the, 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 the dummy action there. That's really bad. That, that was really bad. I can't believe that made it in the movie, but, uh, but that last part, it, it just doesn't quite hold up as well because again, I go back to, to what I think you and I, Mr. Wizard degree is the strongest effect in the movie. And that is that dog scene to begin with. You compare that dog scene to the final scene with the uh, Wilford Brimley thing, and they don't seem like they're quite in the same movie. I don't. I don't know that I agree with that though, because that scene where giant monster Wilford Brimley, where half of his head is like a jaw, and then the dog bursts out of his chest. I. I really. It. It's the same level of gruesome and gross. I just think the difference is. In the first scenario, you're dealing with just dogs, so your brain doesn't quite go to, oh, human or not. So you don't fight that uncanny valley. It just, it's monster. There's it, a handful of, like, tentacles it, that look not great. But it, otherwise, it's dark. I don't know, man. The first scene is darker. The lighting is more convincing. The second one, yeah, just... It's just not as believable to me. I mean, I mean a bit of a, of a you know, curmudgeon here, but... Yeah, that that to me has always been a disappointment with this movie is that uh, from a special effects point of view, it does end on a whimper for me. Well, now I still I I like uh, from the implications of the actual ending with McCready and Childs, I think that's great. That That I'm not complaining about that. I'm just like when it comes to that crescendo from a visuals perspective, it doesn't stick the landing. Uh, the the first scene with Gary getting his face sucked off by Blair. That is one of the worst effects in the movie. It looks pretty bad, even though the lighting's not great. And I think what, and they linger on it, and they yeah. linger on it for a long it's, time. It's, yeah, it's really cool when he's dragging his lifeless corpse, but when he's initially grabs his face, it looks really fake. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess to describe it, it's, he puts his fingers into his cheeks, and it, it's almost like it absorbs into his face. It, it's not clear whether he's like puncturing his face or if his face is like melding with his fingers i don't know it always freaked me out i i think that was an unfinished effect at the end of the day that that's my theory they wanted to do more with it and they just ran out of time or money and they left like you said captain cash you had that weird hybrid hand mouth stretchy thing there should have been some viscera some something else going on there to make it more implicit yeah, it's, it's not clear I, if he's he's killing Gary or if his, he's just melding with Gary. I don't know. It's pretty clear it's uncomfortable. <laughs> I know where that scene came from. Let's see if you agree with me here, Mr. Wizard. That comes from Ash trying to shove the nudie mag into Ripley's mouth. That's what that scene reminds me of. A little bit, yeah. They were trying to go with that, that kind of intimate horror there. That that's that's not a sl- that's not like a, a blunt trauma slasher kill. That's a more intimate thing where you're trying to get into somebody's mouth bluntly like that, and it just doesn't. Yeah, it didn't quite stick. And also the biggest thing, biggest problem with Brimley thing is it's a truncated scene. He appears. Yeah. The things pop out. He, he's blown up. You don't really get. 
as much of the tension because he is rid of him pretty quickly. Whereas almost any other time there's a thing anywhere. Yeah. You're there's a lot like of panic going on. Yeah. That finale really happens pretty quickly. And then, then you get, of course, the great ending. I'm just going to say, the ending of this movie, to me, has a little bit, again, I'll draw the alien com- uh, comparison here, has a bit of shade of the uh, the aliens' queen battle. So basically, Brimley thing is kind of the queen. And where aliens knew to make that a multi-step fight, this one just kind of ends abruptly. Yeah. Yeah, Which, that's a fair point. He was the big yeah. bad. That should have been a bigger deal. But... Again, they ran out of money. Yep. Yeah. So still, the the way this ends is very much in the vein of what was Christopher Nolan's uh, movie, Inception. Thank you. The way this thing ends is very much in the vein of Inception, where you see the top spin, and maybe it wavers a little, but it cuts to black before you get an answer. And I really think the not providing you an answer is what makes this such a strong film. Yep. It adds to the ending. Uh, only females in the movie are uh, the women appearing on a tape version of Let's Make a Deal and Adrian Barbeau's uncredited voice as McCready's computer. Apparently there was a blow-up doll that was cut out. Uh, U.S. camp and the Norwegian camp wanted the same. What they did was shoot the uh, dec- you know decimated Norwegian camp at the end of filming. Uh, it was after they blew up the U.S. base. They did not have enough money to build two. So the Norwegian camp is really the charred remnants of Outpost 31. And a double amputee was used as a double in the scene where Dr. Copper, Richard Dysart, attempts to revive Norris, and his arms are basically bitten in half by yeah. the chasm. The scene that you, if you see it, you will remember in your, in your terrified, semi-waking hours. It is. It's haunting. A lot of the the imagery here is is tough. It was tough to swallow as a kid. That's for sure. When his head is crawling away, or it's like basically slowly going down to the floor, and then it sprouts the legs. Oh, that great, great effects too. Yeah, that sticks. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I have our ode to John Carpenter and the Thing quiz. Welcome back to Hops and Box Office Flops, presented by RevengeTheFans.com. And this is our ode to John Carpenter, director of the thing, quiz. Uh, I got good news, guys. Winner of this quiz gets an all-expenses-paid trip to Antarctica, Outpost 31. It's been rebuilt, uh, retrofitted, modern stuff, no more VHS players, all the windows back in place. Trip of a lifetime. I can't promise you'll be picked up in a timely fashion, but you get a trip there. Do they have an HD DVD player? Oh, <laughs> certainly. Where do you think they put them all? Excellent. Only the finest. All 16 of them. Uh, Sweet. All right, let's get started. Are you ready? Ready and willing. Which would be a first for you. <laughs> Number one. As we noted in the beginning, this film was both a commercial and critical failure when it was released. I've chosen probably the most well-known American film critic for this question, the late Roger Ebert. Which of John Carpenter's movies did he give a higher score to? This or Ghosts of Mars? 
Ghosts of Mars, by the way, is currently the lowest rated John Carpenter movie on Rotten Tomatoes at 27%. It's got to be Ghost of Mars. Yeah, it's Ghost of Mars. It was Ghosts of Mars, which got three stars. For a bonus two points, how many stars out of four did the thing receive? One. Zero. 2.5. So he was Dang. sort of fair. But a three stars for Ghosts of Mars? Come on, Roger. That movie sucks. Wait, is that the Val Kilmer one or the Ice Cube one? The Ice Cube one. Ice Cube one, yeah. Okay. It's not a good movie. And I love John Carpenter. All right, number two. The Thing opened on the same day as this other sci-fi classic. Is it A, Blade Runner, B, E.T., C, Swamp Thing, D, The Dark Crystal, E, Tron? All 1982 movies, by the way. Ooh, yeah. No, this is kind of hard. Uh, Dark Crystal. Uh, E.T. It was A, Blade Runner. Damn. Yep. Nuts. So it's one to one. I mean, to be fair, though, listen to that pedigree, though. 1982. Bring it go. Bring in the heat. Number three. During the autopsy scene, in which they used real animal organs, the only cast member that did not get squeamish, according to Carpenter, was A. Richard Dysart, Dr. Copper. B. Joel Polis, Fuchs. He's the guy who eats uh, windows. windows. Yep. This guy, Fuchs. C. Donald Moffat, who played Gary. D. Richard Mauser, who played Clark, or E. Wilford Brimley, Dr. Blair. Brimley gives zero fucks. He doesn't care about diabetes. He doesn't care about mustaches. Brimley. Your answer, mm. Chopsilla? This is a tough one. Um, I was, I was going to hope that you wouldn't go with Brimley, so I could. Um, you can still go with Brimley. It's all right. He seems tougher. You know, He seems to be cut of uh, better cloth than the rest of them. So I'll go with Brimley. That man can fight diabetes barehanded. In the beginning, I his nickname was "These are my testing supplies." We have now altered that to Wilford. I give no fucks, Brimley. He is the answer. Yeah. You ever seen a hard target when he rides a horse and uses a bow and arrow? Brimley gives no fucks, none. None. Wilford, I will fight the English language and pronounce it diabetes brimley. I'm pretty sure he also might be related to the honey badger. Because the honey badger doesn't give a shit. Wilford Brimley is in not only this movie, which presi- uh, presented many haunting scenes of my youth, but he's in Cocoon, where he tells yes. his other elderly friends he has a boner, and then calls it Blue Steel, and says, Cat couldn't scratch it. Not a scene for a young, young thunderous wizard to appreciate. Which explains a lot to, to do with your diaper fetish now. It's weird, but... Blue steel. Yeah. Number four. The thing... Uh, number four. The filming of the thing was quite grueling and took its toll on Rob Botton, the creator of all the insane special effects. Before they wrapped, he had succumbed to exhaustion. Which special effects wizard of the cinema industry stepped in to finish the effects for this movie? Was it A, Rick Baker, known for such films as American Werewolf in London, B, Peter Naughton, who did the effects for Cujo, amongst other things, C, Stan Winston, T2 Aliens, many more, or D, Tom Savini, the maestro of horror gore, and a personal friend of Captain Cash's? 
that might be stretching. No, I wouldn't go that far. I've, I've met him a couple times at a Renaissance Festival. Uh, I'm going to give it to Baker. I vote A as well. It is C, Stan Winston. No. Damn. Yep. That, would, that was the one I didn't think it was. He would yeah. not accept credit uh, on the movie. But if you watch the full credits, he is thanked uh, for his work on the film. Huh. No kidding. All right. Number five. We have two more. And uh, Captain Cash is up two to... Nope. It's tied two to two. No, we're tied even. Yeah. It is tied yeah. two to two. Ennio uh, Morricone, who scored the film, received a Razzie nomination for Worst Musical Score. Now, again, go screw yourselves, Razzies. Because uh, the score for this movie is incredible. I'll post samplings of it to the social. Now, this is obviously not a typical thing for him. Morricone has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Original original Score six times. He only won it once, though. For which film did he win? Is it A, Bugsy, B, The Untouchables, C, The Hateful Eight, D, The Mission, or E, He Never Won? We'll get rid of E because I just told you he won. <laughs> So it's one of those four. That's that some poor test creation. Uh, I, I, I can. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the hateful eight. I'm gonna go untouchables. Well, he should have won for the untouchables. Probably one of the most iconic single pieces of composition comes from that movie. Also, our buddy Brian De Palma, who we mentioned, a frequenter of the Razzies for no good reason. It is the hateful eight. He had not won oh. the Hateful Eight. Yeah. Wow. Okay, wow. I stole one there. And, which is Woo. astounding to think because The Mission, also a fantastic movie if you've never seen it. Bugsy is probably never the weak it. movie on the list. That the Mission is, yeah. Robert De Niro has to go pay penance for his crimes as like a conquistador. All right, last question. And uh, Chubzilla is now in the lead. Wow, first time ever. First Look time out, Boy, you might get a jettisoned to Outpost 31 is the for your big victory. I'm going to go find McCready. All right, so John Carpenter has also been known to score his films. He did not score this one, as I mentioned at the beginning of the pod. Which of these movies did he also not do the music for? Was it A, Big Trouble in Little China, B, The Memoirs of the Invisible Man, C, Assault on Precinct 13, D, Christine, or E in the mouth of madness. You should see all those movies, listeners. Uh, damn. One more time. A's big trouble. Yeah, definitely did that. B Memoirs of the Invisible Man. C Assault on Precinct Thirteen, the good one. D Christine. E in the mouth of madness. Which, which assault on uh, Precinct Thirteen did he do? Who's the star of that one? Not the one with Ethan Hawke. No, and Ving Rhames. Yeah. Okay, nobody, nobody was really famous in that one. No, it's like, it, it was an early 80s movie. What do you think, fellas? You know what? Give, give me A. He didn't score Big Trouble. Uh, what, what are my options again? A, Big Trouble. Big Trouble. B, Memoirs yeah. of the Invisible Man. C, Assault on Precinct 13. D, Christine, Stephen King, what up? E, In the Mouth of Madness. Sam Neill. The great Sam Neill. Oh, man, this is a tough one. Give me my molecules back. Just take a stab at it, Chumzilla. You know, I'm going to play it safe, and I'm going to go with Big Trouble. Let's play it safe. He did score Big Trouble, uh, a record I own. 
Shit. One of my favorite scores. I knew that. Time. Wait, I knew that. I knew that because you own it. You told yeah. us to sit up in one of the pods. Oh. Here's, here's... I know he did Christine. I know he did Christine. Did he do it in the Mouth of Madness? Yep. He so it's it. Precinct 13. It's Memoirs of the Invisible Man. And here's the big thing you guys oh. are missing. That was a Chevy Chase movie. So it really wasn't a stereotypical Carpenter film. It was more of a goofball uh, movie. Uh, it's not terrible. Uh, uh, but it wasn't in the same vein of a lot of his films. He did not score that. So, Chubzilla, the big winner. We'll uh, see you at the end of winter. Maybe not. We can't promise the accommodations will be all that warm. Or we can promise they'll be very, very warm for about mm, five to ten seconds, and then you won't care. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We come back, we're going to do recommendations. And uh, that's it. So we're back on Hops and Box Office Flops. This is our final segment. It is recommendations. I'll go first. Uh, my recommendation, which you two, neither of you have seen yet, is Joker. I know it's made a lot of money, so a lot of people have seen it. If you haven't, go see it. Uh, I've had roughly a week to reflect on this. The more I think about that movie, the more I'm sort of astounded by how good it was. It's a haunting character study. Yes, you feel for Arthur as he spirals downward. In saying that, I no way do I condone the things he does. Uh, it's just a wonderfully shot movie, brilliantly acted. The score is incredible. You know I love music. The music serves as such a nice like setup to what is happening and the way that Arthur, the character, is feeling. It really ratchets the tension. I'm going to stop there. I don't want to spoil any of it. You should go see it. I'm going to go see it again. I rarely do that anymore. I really loved it. And it's got a transcendent Joaquin Phoenix performance. What I will say is, you may love Heath Ledger. That's great. These are totally different takes on the character. They really could be different characters entirely. They can they function on their own completely. Just like Nicholson functions on his own. Jared Leto functions on his own weird little island that hopefully we never revisit. Like You can love and appreciate things about both of those performances don't even compare them just go go in it with a fresh mind and watch him put on a master class there's very few actors left anymore that can do the sorts of things he does it was brilliant you may not like the movie but you'll leave it going jesus that guy really sells it for these films it was unbelievable Chubzilla, recommendation all right you hinted at it last week and i'll, I'll make a homer pick here um, hey, I think everybody should go out and try to get a copy of Deadbeat at Dawn off of Amazon. Um, it is a fantastic B-ish movie, uh, independent film release from Jim Van Bever, who is actually my next door neighbor growing up in Ohio. Uh, he filmed the movie in Dayton. Again, independent film. Um, it is basically the, the tale of uh, uh, a gang member who decides to leave his gang to spend more time with his girl, but that doesn't work out as he would like it to. And his girlfriend is murdered by a rival gang in an effort to draw him into a war, and it works. And all I can say is that uh, Joe Bob Briggs called it the greatest drive-in movie of all time. And there's Kung Fu. 
there are decapitations, uh, there are drug-fueled uh, psychedelic scenes. It's fantastic. Deadbeat at Dawn, starring, directed by, written by Jim Van Bever. You can get it on Amazon. Check it out. I'm going to do a thing I don't usually do, which is give my recommendation to a tossback from yesteryear. Go check out fucking Gargoyles. Uh, Keith David, the uh, main character there, as Goliath. It was a great show. Uh, the first two seasons. Don't don't watch the third season. But as Disney afternoon cartoons go, I'm still waiting on that reboot. It was a contemporary with the uh, Batman, the animated series. If I'm not uh, it was contemporary, but different channel, I think. Different channel, but my point is those those cartoons were both very good at the time. Oh yeah, it, oh yeah. It, it, the gargoyles don't get the same recognition that the uh, uh, Taz does. Yeah, uh, you know, because uh, what's the what's his name? Uh, Tim uh, Bruce Tim. Yeah, Bruce Tim. Yeah, Bruce I mean, Tim I'll, and Paul Dini. Yeah, he's kind of the bigger star because those had bigger legs as they went on. But the Gargoyles was ju- almost just as good at the time. Oh, yeah. Gargoyles. Solid, solid cartooning. Great-ass cartoon. So I'm fairly sure yeah. it is coming to Disney+. Plus. A, a reboot of Gargoyles. I thought I really? saw Really? Yeah. Uh, nice. So you guys sort of went in the theme of this movie. Joker is, is a recommendation. But if I'm going to represent John Carpenter, which I think... He should be. Obviously, you could watch the most recent Halloween, which they brought him back to do the music for. Another record I have on the way. Uh, but we all watch movies like this on late night cable TV. Like, I probably watched Big Trouble more times than I could possibly count because it was on TBS all the time. And a movie that's sort of been lost, that's part of his filmography because of you know people cutting the cord uh, or whatever, is They Live also starring Keith David in a supporting role. That is quintessential Carpenter. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the most relevant movies he's made. I'll leave it at that, but when you watch it, you'll understand. Th- that was I've my... come to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of ass. Wait, what? What? So He's the thing. I... I yeah. <laughs> Torch him. Um, Am I? I think we should probably do a pod on They Live because it is probably John Carpenter's most important film. Yeah, it it has very real parallels to what is happening right now. And and what a lot lot of people don't know is the whole Obey, um, whatever brand that does the Obey shirts. Yeah. uh Originally, it was Andre the Giant, right? Uh, it was sort of, yeah, yeah. It was kind of. That's kind of what they, the the template, whatever. But yeah, but the, the whole the whole motif came from those adverts in They Live, and, and it's Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yep, Come the on. late great Rowdy Roddy, one of my all time faves. Uh, so uh, before we wrap up, I will say, if you like the show, please leave us a review. Probably on Apple Podcasts. That seems to be the predominant platform of choice. Uh, a written review would be great. Just stars is great too. Again, we'll post a lot of this stuff to our social at hops and bo flops. So, folks, you you may not believe any of this voodoo bullshit, but it happens all the time. They're dropping out of the skies like flies, man.
We'll see you next time. Chariots of the Gods. Take care, folks. <laughs>